Right, welcome back to part two of Based in the City. I'm sure our next guest needs no introduction at all, uh, Soul to Soul's Jazzy B. But, um, I mean, the great thing about having Jazzy as part of this, um, this sound system saga, if you like, is um, Jazzy's Soul to Soul sound system, which osmos from a sound system called Jarico, that... It was down to him, he bought the underground overground. It was, this was what brought sound system culture into the mainstream. So we're really lucky to have Jazzy here to, um, to tell us all about it. Ladies and gentlemen, Jazzy B. All right, fella. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> you're going to play us a piece of music first, I believe. Actually, yeah, because um, when Lloyd bent my arm and made me do this here today. He said, um, maybe we could start off of what inspired me, what was my inspiration. So just a quick brief, growing up in a West Indian family, North London, actually Finsbury Park, and um, I come from a, quite a large family, I guess. One of the things that always was in the house was a bit of furniture, which we used to call a blue spot gram, which was the old Blair pun, um, bit of furniture. Between that and a picture of Cassius Clay and the Queen, and a couple other bits of memorabilia, and lots of crochet, um, that was an important bit of kit in our ass. And what was interesting, because I had so many brothers and sisters and stuff, um, I'm the last of... Um, they say that generation, as it were, born in the 60s. So the 70s was the, probably the best time to come up. Um, that's when there were real kind of superstars and stuff like that, like Cassius Clay and people like that. Um, sound system was my life. Sound system was like everything to me. No, that's a lie. What about football? <laughs> anyway, the two go hand in hand. But um, what was nice about the sound system thing is because a couple of my brothers had sound systems and that was all the way from um, one of my brother's sounds that was pretty good at the time was a sound called El Rico. But I used to follow like Count Barry, um, Sir Biggs, obviously Fat Man. And in those early days, you had sounds like Safrana B, Mafia's Downbeat and people like that. Coming up, I was sort of like in my family, I used to carry the valves. So back in the day when the sound man built sound systems, just talk to a fella back there and he goes, this is someone's sound. That's a lie. This can't be a man's sound system. Sound system more DIY, you see me? You build that yourself, you put all that together and that lot. I suppose you could call this evolution. <laughs> yeah, yeah, evolution, your progress, maybe. <laughs> or progress, whatever. But it's funny because as an old-time sound system man, when I go out and people call themselves sound systems and stuff like that, and you yeah. look at the sound, what they got, we could have never build a sound like that. First of all, the sound was always built by the speakers, at least, all the ancillary equipment, was usually built by what we called in those days craftsmen carpenters and we couldn't afford marine ply and all that lot so we used to use chipboard 
And with that chipboard, you get a piece of formica and cover your speakers and a gold crest or whatever. And somebody whose hand was straight would maybe brush in whatever the sound was called. We used to use a thing like Brasso. Every weekend, you polish your amps and your, your, your cabinets and stuff like that. So all the brass, all the chrome work would look amazing. And one of my jobs at about seven, between seven or eight, I used to carry these valves for my brother's sound. And them times, you used to use KT-88s. So you couldn't you know, have it on the tray when you're transporting, so you had to take the valves out. So my job was to carry these valves. How, so big, how big were these valves? To me, they were giant, right? Like really massive. It, it, and the reason why, because they fooled me into thinking that if you brought one of these, the whole thing is over. So in actual fact, KT-88s are about that big. <laughs> They're not that big, really. What was massive, if you know anything about electronics, is more the transformers to give you the current DC current, you see, so that was what was important. On top of that now, you'd have a few resistors and then if you was lucky, you wouldn't pick up the ambulance or in them days, the minicab signal because everything was analog, you know, so sometimes your sound was playing and your valves and stuff wasn't grounded properly and all that lot. You'd pick up all these different things going on. And some people might think it's all part of the mu you know, the part of the plan of the gig, but it weren't. It was someone's signal. You were actually um, crossing someone's signal. But as a kid growing up, I used to love the smell of these things. And that's really what got me into sound systems. I used to think there were little people in the blue spot gram. And um, for me, it was always a show because that gram would go on on Monday and it never seemed to sign off. It was always on, so there was a constant stream. Maybe that's why my shrink says I can't sleep properly because I have to hear white noise, you know? And I was probably listening to them amps and that because I used to try to sleep right by the cabinet. But growing up, though, that's what was interesting. The other thing which was weird, that a lot of people don't seem to talk about, I'm a child of the 60s. So the music that played in my house from my parents, more time it was actually folk music and country and western. So there's a myth about everyone thinking that we straight into tubbies and all that lot and, and, and scientists and all that. It, it, I was raised on listening to this kind of music via church. So they always will put the fear of God in you, you know? So um, you listen to these actual kind of country and western songs and that, and what I realized a lot later on was that they were stories. So if you go back and listen to this kind of music, a lot of that music was about stories and things that happen. That syncs up with the whole reggae scene for me, understanding what reggae music at the time was telling us. And I'm talking about post Blue Beat and Scar, because to be fair, that weren't really my bag, you know what I mean? I weren't really, you know, you had to listen it, or even I remember when I played for Dougie's and, and them guys, it, you always had to play a little bit of that kind of music because, you know, that was, the, I guess, the crossover bit. But um, I learned about things like melodies and, and stuff like that, and all the songs seemed to always have a melody. 
So that's how I got into sort of like maybe production and songwriting, realizing from those early days, listening to people like everyone from Lou Rawls to Donny Hathaway, Lord Kitchener to um, Short Shirt and all those Clipsonians and stuff like that. You mix that up now. You know, in the 70s, I got involved in people like Ziggy Stardust. I was a massive fan, Benny and the Jets and all that lot. Uh, Burt Bacharach's music, Philadelphia and all that. Because all of those musics actually had melodies and those were the various links. So the, the first lot of music I remember um, listening to that really tipped me over the edge was the Impressions. And then I realized all those reggae songs were covers of these great R&B songs. I mean, that's like 10 years later, right? It was very interesting though. I tripped over all of this and I was so blessed that all of those artists that I used to listen to and think were they real, you know, superstars and stuff, I actually got to meet each and every one of them before they passed away. Some of them I worked with, which I was a bit lucky to um, fall into that trap. But um, just giving you a snapshot of the kind of music that inspired me. I walk with that music every day. Um, yeah, let's have a quick listen. Is that all right? This song in particular really like um, amazed me and I used to love all the string sections and the way all the arrangements was done. This is my encyclopedia, my Bible, Curtis Mayfield. So that song's got lots of elements that um, I managed to put together as, um, I guess, a producer that was coming up using a lot of um, incredible equipment that came to our disposal probably after the Falkland War or something like that. So technology played a major part. 
in for me my sound system and then obviously in my my writing and things like production because by that time I was able to make layers and um, the other part what some people don't realize is that in my career as I started off I started off as a t-boy I worked for um, a gentleman called um, Tommy Steele an old um, English he's actually still alive and kicking he had a studio in uh, Marble Arch in Bryanston Street called Nova Studios and that's where I cut my teeth with um, a lot of amazing um, producers, um, people like, um, uh, I've got a bit of a blank there, I guess that's what happens when you get old. What, <laughs> what, I, was, what I will say is um, that time really did serve Jazzy well. I've never met anybody who makes a better cup of tea. <laughs> Jazzy's tea is astonishing. Yeah, they used to cost uh, £50 a pot in those days, because that's how you made um, your money in the recording studios. But between Nova Studios and um, Pi Studios in, in Marble Arch. So I worked for ev um, a lot of people, people like Bidu. Um, I think he did Carl Douglas, one of Carl Douglas's first tunes over in that studio. And then I ended up working for bands like Candidate, Central Line. There's a gentleman, a producer called Ron Carter in those days. Um, I guess they that was the first time that major labels had these imprints and I guess DJs or A&R men started to make those records and our recording studio was used for one of those or I guess that sort of production as it were and that's where I learned to do a lot of the stuff I um, ended up doing as a engineer and a, I guess a sort of producer. What I found, always found interesting about your career was um, you were an old-time sound man, essentially, learning that craft from your brother. Um, but you you didn't play reggae when you switched from uh, El Rico to Soul to Soul. You didn't play reggae, but you used all the old kind of reggae sound system values. Well, what happened um, few <laughs> back in the day... Alexander Palace on a Sunday afternoon used to have roller skating and stuff like that. It's a place where a lot of young people hanged out. Fat Man used to play there Sunday afternoon, probably this kind of time. On one particular event, there was this gentleman called Emperor Roscoe. I don't know if any of you remember that name. I, um, I don't even know. I, I, I couldn't have been any more than eight years old because them times I was going to primary school. And... Um, Emperor Roscoe battered Fat Man. Like, this was a white Canadian guy who probably just drank whiskey all the time. He had an incredible um, history of music and stuff like that. But to my dismay, this was Fat Man. How, how could this be? It was, um, it was amazing. Fat Man was a local hero at that time. He still is our hero, yeah, actually. Yeah, is, yeah. Um, it was just absolutely amazing that Emperor Roscoe came on and he actually smashed the place. He actually broke up Alexander Palace right on a Sunday afternoon. Many of the patrons were obviously, um, you know, in those days there was a class system. So we were all talking about working class kids, particularly black kids from the area. So that's everyone from North London was in this place on a Sunday afternoon. This is pre-Norwich, 
stage, right? Because Norwich used to have a Sunday afternoon session as well. And again, Fat Man would entertain. So anything that was going on in that area or that region, that was the guy who most of us followed. Of course, unless he was a little sway to the West London side, but that's another thing. Um, blew my mind. And um, I guess the rest is history. After that, I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't understand exactly how this happened. I guess I got beaten up by a few other sounds along the way, and that's when it dawned on me. I used to follow this wonderful gentleman called Steve Walsh, and um, he was the only kind of club I could get into, to be fair. I used to go to Froggy's gigs and, and a few of those other, what they called them, the Soul Mafia gigs, but I could never get in. There used to be a quota in those days when you used to go to like East London and try to get into any of those clubs. I guess they let about five black people in and that was your lot. So if you didn't get there early enough, you couldn't get in. And then along came, um, I say along came, Steve was obviously playing out before and then I started to follow Steve Walsh and he kind of embraced us younger sort of urbanites as it were. And that led on to everything from Lyceum, we used to go and that's when I started to figure out hang about, he's looking at us as opposed to his back. Is a, you know, and when they're talking, oh, you know, and all that chanting and all that, like it's very tribal and that. I thought, shit, this is just like reggae, isn't it? So just flip the script and just I made my sound inclusive. And I think that was the biggest thing that made me made a difference of my sound system than the others. And there was other sounds that used to be like that. I remember Les had a sound called Locomotion. It was just, um, <coughs> explain w what happened there. It's like reggae sound systems always played for very good reason with um, the people who were operating the sound system in between the equipment and the crowd. So what it meant was that um, most people playing the sound system actually had their back to the crowd, which um, don't seem to make any sense at all, you know? And what Josie's saying is actually looking at DJs like Steve Walsh and these kind of jazz funk guys, they were looking out at the crowd, the people who had actually paid money to be entertained. They were engaging with them. And the notion was exclusive when you got your back to the crowd or inclusive when you're kind of welcoming the crowd into your world. And that was the change, wasn't it? It was massive, you know, because even playing at blues dances <coughs> or you played against another sound in a hall, you try to get there early so you could string up in the best places, like get your speakers around, whatever. But then after a while, when we start to get a little bit more popular, it seems stupid us turning up early. If you want to create a stir, you turn up late, mash up the dance, you know, put the other sound at a little bit of edge, you know. It was all them kind of tactics started to work in. So I used to bring those sort of like unwashed sound system tactics <laughs> into my game. And in those days, what was really good for us in our communities, because there was community centers that you couldn't rent. So we used to use the church hall. There was always places like that, you know, um, whoever was trimming here, he would have a basement. So those are the kind of venues that we ended up initially playing until this gentleman called Dougie's in Junction Road allowed me a spot on a Thursday night. We used to call it like, a, we used to call it like a sports night. We were in school, we were like, <laughs> We couldn't have been older than 13 years old. First year of secondary school, we were running a Thursday night dance in Junction Road. It was amazing. 
Dougie let off. He, he gave me that little space. I remember seeing Smokey Joe there on a Friday night. Place was packed. Moody music. I always used to go moody out the music. And then I'd go there and then just flip the script, change it all. And one time, he said to me that you must play souls. And what he meant, you had to play a bit of soul music. I said, my sound is called Soul to Soul. What are you talking about? But he was talking about kind of two-step soul. So what was interesting, I was able to blend in. That's when I got into, you know, your Betty Wrights and things like that. So you had to drop them kind of tune because a lot of the crowd was a bit older. Then we got all that school kids in there with silly strings. What was interesting is that after two weeks, yeah, because he gave me a little bit of a breather, the old people started to act like the young people. It was brilliant. It was uh, absolutely amazing. And then I managed to fill up, the well, myself and Daddy Harvey, we managed to fill up the place on a Thursday night. I remember we used to do moody things back in the day. We'd we had acquired this thing called Impulse. And every woman that came to the dance, we'd give them a bottle of Impulse and stuff like that. And we got known as the sound that was giving. So every week, we, you know, somebody worked in some sort of business. And again, it's a bit, <laughs> you know, well, it's a bit like that when you're um, shuffling, as it were, back in the old working class days. If you worked in a biscuit factory, you get loads of biscuits. If you worked in a soap factory, get loads of soaps and so on and so forth. We integrated that into our sound system. So every time we play that, it was like, you know, at birthday parties, you get a bag, didn't you? Come to Soul Soul, you get something, you know, every time. Used to be 50 pence to come in my dance, 20 pence and stuff like that. You'd walk away with a bag, you know what I mean? You call them goodie bags now. We had no idea what we were doing, but we knew people was interested in that. And all these happy mistakes, including the design of the Funky Dread and how we came up with our philosophy, a happy face, a thumping face for loving race, all of those things just happened right there in our community. Um, and it was such a mixed bag of people as well. Again, we're kind of angels of the 60s. So when we came, you know, obviously there was a lot of shit going on, but most of the shit was tolerated because of the class system. So we tended to make all of that work for us and not against us. So, you know, even I remember stupid things. We used to spend... All working class kids used to spend mad money on clothes and styling and stuff like that. I even remember days of doing the club walks <laughs> and you'd wear your trainers and stuff like that and keep your crocs and lizards until you actually got to the door. All of those things for me was part and parcel of the sound system, what it took to be in the sound system. And it wasn't just a black thing. A lot of the guys in my sound were kind of Greek and um, from various places in Europe. But most importantly about changing the name to Soul to Soul, we had a, a female element in our sound. So we had a female DJ, a female MC and stuff like that. And that was deemed to be, I guess, fresh and new, you know? So uh, these are the things that I think made Soul to Soul as a sound system completely different from all the other sounds. There was one guy who wasn't too impressed with um, the stuff at Dougie's, what went on at Dougie's. It was actually Dougie himself. <laughs> <laughs> Dougie was an interesting character. Um, and again, going back to those days, one of the interesting things about even the time I, put, I spent with Count Suckle and stuff like that, you have to understand where those guys were coming from. 
seriously, nobody was helping. They didn't have any help from any of the institutions. Even in those days, when you used to go to the bank, you would have to have somebody as a reference. That would be like a school teacher, a doctor, or somebody who had this kind of a job. Most of us were immigrants, so when we were coming in, even to get a place to rest or uh, like to live in and stuff like that, that was always interesting as well. But as we West Indians say, you know, take a mickle to make a muckle. So anything that was out there, we would find a way of making it work for us, which would include susu parties, like when you try a, um, <laughs> sorry, let me start again, partner. Partner was when you each person, like a pyramid scheme, and, and we would do that in our communities. And every month, somebody would get a, what they called a box share. Within that box share, you could maybe put a deposit on the house, do this, that, and the other. All the geezers were doing that to build their sound systems. So that shows you how important those things were and how much of our life was um, surrounded by that. And I guess in my situation, I ended up taking it literally. And I lived by that code in terms of all of the things, you know, even working for Mr. Young, we had a few West Indian shops and stuff like that. So you would frequent them. Then I found out that <laughs> none of the West Indians that I wanted at my dance were going to those shops. They were going to like the kebab shop, the pie mash shop, chippy and stuff like that. So that's where we started to fly and, it, you know, give out flyers and stuff like that. And again, that made our audience a little bit different from all the other sounds audience. That was something as well that came into the, the sphere of us being an inclusive sound system. So for us, it was like everybody that came through the door helped to make the party, as it were. So whether we were playing at a... A nine night, you know, somebody passed away and there was a bit of music going on, or it was a christening or a wedding, whatever it was, every opportunity. We also got a massive break in the church. Now, it's something I'm not really proud of, but I took advantage of that situation really badly. You used to have to, you were separated at some point in the church. Thing. I wasn't really into church. My parents just sent me there just so they could have a rest, you know what I mean? So we would go to church and then you start pinpointing all the people that you wanted to come to your dance. <laughs> and in that pinpointing the people, their cousins, cousins, was a minister at another church. And that other church was associated with another church in Leeds, Leicester, Sheffield, Manchester. <gasps> After a minute, it was like the football league. You went to these church outings and there were thousands of people who didn't know why they were there either. So we were all like-minded and somehow we all kind of got the thing, oh, let's all rave together. <laughs> what a wicked thing to do. But anyway, it kind of helped because, you know, church went up. A little bit them times there. Preacher didn't even know what was going on, but there was a lot of young people in the congregation when it came time to Easter and them time there when you used to have a trip. So this lady, Miss Green, she would always have these amazing coach trips. For us, girl like Sam, it was the only time the parents would let the girls out, isn't it? Unbelievable. So we saw that angle. 
And we moved in on that part there. So the church thing was very important to us because of the clientele. And those girls, yeah, they were right. <laughs> so that's how that part happened. And that was the connection sweetly, you know, about being an asset to the collective was the fact that all these people from all over the place were into the music that we were into. So I ended up playing in, in Leeds, a place called Chapel Town in Leeds, which was very heavily like my kind of community. I met at least 40% of my cousins in Leicester under the same circumstances. Then we went to this place called Liverpool. Whoa, that was an eye opener. I didn't look back from that day. I went everywhere. Every single out in this green had, I was up there. Sometimes I play myself for free. But you know, when you're a big sound and you're doing all right, people does give you money, you see me? So we were on that flex every week. Then I went down to a place called St. Paul's in Bristol. I guess my eyes were opened by Liverpool. By the time I reached Bristol now, this thing is out of control. So the whole circuit was really interesting. There were shabines going on, and it started to feel like, all right, so you could play out Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. So we started to invest more in our sound system, loan out bits of the sound so we could go to the dances. You feel me? From my idea there, maybe 10, 15 years later, I used the same strategy to really big up what we were doing in the club world and that. By the time we were, my shops and all that were going, we were in a situation where we were literally playing out four nights a week and how could we be any bigger? Release one of your dubs because no sound system, that was really wrong. You should never do that. But I was in, in, in an altercation one time with a raster man who thought that he would make my mind up whether I wanted to be a dread or a barlid. So I figured if he could do that, I could make my mind up on anything. You get me? So I did. I released a dub plate. This, the track was called Fair Play. <coughs> I mean, from that, technically the rest was history. Every single move I make, even up to today, is something to do with football or the way my sound system is run. And um, I got to meet great people who helped me along the way, everyone from sort of Hans Zimmer, who gave me the use of his studio. I learned about polysymphs and stuff like that from him, from working at his gaff to, you know, being around Mr. Brown. I moved with James Brown for over three years and he treated me like a son. Um, people like Barry White and the great Curtis Mayfield. I mean, unfortunately, he had the accident. We were all performing at the same time during 1990 at all what we were doing. And um, I met him just after the accident and stuff like that. And then I met so many other people that I was fortunate enough to start working with and that. But I'd honestly cut my teeth in the early days from everything from carrying those valves to playing at Mrs. Green's <laughs> church parties to all of those things in terms of where we sort of lived in London. And by the way, like Lloyd says, what happened with Soul to Soul, I do honestly believe could have only been the fact that we were here in Britain and particularly in London 
because it was such a platform for us um, as a bohemian sort of sound system that it could only flex that you were from London. Because even when we used to go out to Bristol and places like that, they were also fascinated because the sound was quite um, efficient. And um, I had, I, you know, uh, I used to play for a man called uh, Mr. Charles, London Road in Reading, every week on a Wednesday night in the Caribbean Centre. And the place was jammed. But what was cool, I learned things like cargo, the amount of weight of a sound system. I mean, that would take an Arctic truck and about 10 men to move it, right? In our day, we had a little Plessy van because my friend worked for Plessy. And we had these little speakers like called Bose 802s. And I had about 20 of them. I could split that up, Lloyd. It was like this, like these little boxes. And I'm talking about 1980, 83, 84. We were killing it. Because all the other guys had these massive sounds and stuff, couldn't get into the houses. Mums were like, no, you know, I'll bring that in here. <laughs> and we used to carry our little sound. Our sound looked all Chris and neat, you know what I mean? Like I said, I always paid attention to detail, polishing up the stands, good cables and all that. Lloyd, we had it. It was brilliant. Right. Nana, we're going to take some questions now. Someone must have a question for Jazzy. I, I can't believe you haven't. I very dare you. souls um, you know what quite a lot really I guess the, mo the most important thing was that you know just stay true to your game and what you believe in and um, they use terms nowadays like stay in your lane and that lot but the idea is that just stay focused on what you're doing because even with us and it seems like other people I've met along the way a lot of people don't really understand what you're trying to do so the best way to do is to do it, and um, that's the best bit of advice. Um, how do you think the change in particular London club culture has affected teenagers? And you know, when I was growing up as an immigrant to this country, I was introduced to your music by my older brothers, and that was the door opening me into the club scene and the, uh, so but over the years we've seen about i would say about 15 really important london clubs have closed like from subterranea the end uh, you know coliseum ec1 the list goes on um how do you think that's affected youth culture obviously there's still music festivals and they're in but there was something so special about the weekly nights of going to the same nights in areas you would have maybe not gone to and mixed with people you would have not gone mixed with. Do you think it's affected youth culture? Personally, no, not at all. That was then, this is now. We were blessed to have those times, but the millennials could never be like how we were because they've come from a different, a whole different world. And how we're living now is completely different from those nooks and crannies and fractures that were out there during the class system. We no longer live in a class system. 
So half the problem is some of our heads are caught up in how we were raised through being working class, middle class or upper class and what was expected of you as opposed to these millennials now. You look through the tunnel, it's a laser beam coming at you, not a flicker of light, you know what I mean, that you're trying to put in focus. Most of the kids who are coming up now, it's just like bang, bang, bang and it's supposed to happen yesterday when our thing was a steady grind, you know. Plus, in terms of talking about class system, most of us growing up in those days, you had brothers and sisters who would open the door. Most of the children of the generation now, it's one and two child. So they don't have the luxury of that. They don't have the luxury of the community living in the way where we would pass information down and so on and so forth. So actually, no, things have to change. And in some situation, I guess the wound has to itch before it heals. So in the scenario that we're currently in now, they're having it away, aren't they, really? The problem probably is there's a lot more of them. So just I remember you used to go and have this book called a Haynes Manual on a Sunday. You'd go and fix up your Mini or your Leyland car, you feel me? And then you take that out on the A40 up the Marleybourne Road and you might drive to Luton or one of them places and come back in the same hour or that. Try doing that now. There's a gang of cars on the motorway, there's loads of people, etc., etc. Even the way we exchange knowledge and information, it, it was like word of mouth in our days. Some of these children can't even talk to one another now. So from that point of view, I mean, I played fabric last night or after this morning. Knackered. Anyway, what was interesting about that, why I did that again, is because that's another generation. And just like you were saying back in those days, Colosseum, this, that, and the other, Thank God it's changed, you know, maybe even from my point of view. I was a regular at Royalty. I mean, we used to have a club in the West End called the Africans. Imagine if that was still going on there. The fridge in Brixton, it's not even called the fridge anymore. So things have to evolve. Here's the biggest one for you. This is someone's sound system. Please. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's evolution, isn't it? This is what it's all about. We've got time for one more. Is that it? Hello. Hi, Liz. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so when um, Soul to Soul was kind of evolving and in the early days, when what track would you say got you onto the road where you are now and which one really drove you to getting bigger and to where you are now, really? I guess really it was the, the taking the plunge with my first track called Fair Play. It was really, really, um, it was a strategy that we were forming. In those days, um, we were on the last of the sound systems coming out of the 80s. And so there were these massive pockets of like um, different clubs and different tribes and that. And um, I mean, you were on the early days of what they call the warehouse parties and this big explosion as we know now. So there were all these pockets of different sort of tribes as it were. By me releasing Fair Play, it was a real snapshot of one, what was happening down south and everybody was into what was going on. And if some of you check even the video of Fair Play, which is this month is 30 years old, that record. And this is actually my 30th anniversary this year. So 19, um, well, the record came out 87, but it was um, like, um, commercially released in 88. Um, aesthetically, I, I just came across from 
um, Old Street, just over Brick Lane. There's people who dress in like my video in 30 years ago. This is how they're walking around now, today. So it's an absolute pleasure for me to still physically be around, Liz, and see that happening. And if anything, you know, my personal favorite record from Club Classics Volume 1 is actually Jazzy's Groove. And because the simplicity and how hard it was for me to make that record. But the, the, the gateway, the thing that opened the door was fair play. And I knew that because that got me a residency in 1987 uh, in New York. And I played, I was one of the few DJs, British DJs, that had a residency at a club called Mars in the meatpacking district of New York. And, you know, that's where I was with people like Keith Herring and all those other guys. This was the mid-80s and an English man with my sound system. And Suckle and them was in, they had moved to the Americas by that time, so they were living in like Flatbush and in, in those areas. So a lot of their children, we were all friends. So it was amazing at that time. And the record that Frankie Crocker and um, DJ Red Alert first played was Fair Play. And um, that set a swelling around New York and, um, yeah, as they say, the rest is history. So that was a massive thing. So fair play. Thank you. Daniel will get no hurt, Mr. No, no, no. I say.